The visibility of gender and sexual minorities via the discourses around LGBTQIA+ have indeed gained significant influence amongst younger and urban Indonesians. But how about the important roles warias have played in negotiating the visibility of gender and sexual diversity in Indonesia's public space and cultural political landscape? How do they navigate public life in the world's largest Muslim society? In this episode, we have Dr. Benjamin Hegarty, who is a McKenzie Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Hi, Anissa. Thank you for having me. You will soon have your book out. Could you tell me what makes you first interested in the topic and the history of waria or transgender in Indonesia? Thank you, Anissa. Um, so my book is entitled The Made-Up State. And it engages questions of the relationship between gender performance and public space. So in the book, I kind of outline the ways in which public space uh, throughout Indonesian history has not been neutral, but central in defining uh, how and in what ways gender and sexual minorities in particular belong. Um, so in terms of how I came to the topic, um, I conducted research in Indonesia, fieldwork in Indonesia, in mostly in the cities of Yogyakarta and in Jakarta in 2014 and 15. Um, and I was really interested in the ways that, uh, I guess, gender and sexual minorities were asserting themselves in Indonesia's uh, post-1998 uh, reform era. So this was an opportunity, of course, uh, for lots of different groups to assert new demands um, on the state and, and including, including claims to recognition. And that included, of course, uh, gender and sexual minorities such as Wariya, um, Indonesia's, uh, I guess, transgender, transgender women is, is a way that, that that might be defined. But what I found was that rather than entirely framed in relation to this kind of, I guess, democratic or liberal assertion of, of, of rights, uh, really contestations over public space were um, what mattered a lot to, to the people that I was working with. So as a result, I, I became really interested in, in why that might be the case. Ben, that's such a great way for me to know how you started with your interest in studying Waria or transgendered women. But before we move on, uh, could we perhaps introduce our listeners to the concept of Waria itself? Yeah, that's that's a fantastic question. Um, so although I've you know easily referred to Waria as a or translated Waria really as transgender women, that's of course an approximation and one that 
a designation that I guess scholars make that in the popular sphere you, you sometimes see uh, as a translation as a way to, to give an impression of, of the meanings of a term like wadiya. And of course in Indonesia you have people who uh, might identify of course as transgender themselves, as trans themselves, and a number of other terms therein. So I guess the first thing to say is that wadiya is not the only term used, but that it is a relatively well-known national term that's used throughout Indonesia. So wadiya has a, has a little bit of an interesting history that makes it different to, say, for example, transgender. The term wadiya is relatively new. I think is the first first thing that, that's important to say. Of course, diverse performances of, of gender and sexuality have ex existed and, and exist according to a, a wide array of terms. But Wadia itself dates, in fact, from the late 1970s, from, from 1978, which of course was, was as listeners will, will know well, is um, the, the height of the authoritarian new order. But the way that, that Wadia works, I think, and the important thing to, to note when we're defining Wadia is that it's a combination term. So that it combines two words. It combines Wanita and Priya, which are Indonesian words for uh, woman and man. What is notable about that, of course, is that those two terms invoke a gender binary, I guess a, a heteronormative and sense a kind of cisgendered um, way of understanding gender. But of course, in combining the term, in uh, combining those two words into a single term, Wadia assert a kind of different form of embodiment that nevertheless relies on some sense of the gender binary, but not in the way that it's kind of commonly commonly understood. So that's something that I find very interesting about, about Wadia itself. The other thing to say is that wadia is 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 not the, the first term of that sort. So a decade earlier in 1968, another term, wadam, um, which uh, is another combination word for terms, for words for masculinity and femininity, in this case, hawa and adam, um, or wanita and adam. And wadam, in a sense, was a term that emerged out of discussion and um, I guess the assertion of, of the desire to occupy public space or, or belong in public space to the Jakarta mayor uh, or governor at the time, Ali Siddiquan. And so both Wadam and Wadia are both terms that in, in my research I found were claimed as a kind of modern form of transgender femininity. Mm. Ben, Indonesia is well known as the world's largest Muslim society, where more than 220 million Muslims live. How would you explain the position of waria uh, in Indonesian society? Yeah, this is such a, a great question. And I do think that Islam has a very interesting relationship to waria. And one that kind of, I guess, exceeds this notion that gender and sexual minorities um, are kind of incompatible with Islam. Although in saying that, I do think that Wadiya and, and, and perhaps other gender and sexual minorities in Indonesia do struggle, I guess, to articulate a position in relation to Islam and Islam in relation to 
to to them. I guess one thing that I I'm drawn to here is the way that the relationship between not only Wadia and Islam, but Islam and the nation, or Islam and the state, has shifted over time. So it's not something that is stable or, or is set in stone. And I guess this might be a little bit of a frustrating answer, but it's not as though there's some kind of easy pattern or a kind of linear path through which Wadiya have become more or less accepted in relation to Islam over time. There's kind of moments of acceptance in specific kind of contexts, and then moments of, um, I guess, at times tolerance or begrudging tolerance, at times rejection, unfortunately. But you know, you you could probably go as far back as the the nineteenth century to look at the ways in which forms of stage performance like Ludruk in East Java, uh, which involve a, a, a figure who adopts a feminine uh, gender presentation when on stage, really became uh, the focus of concern for. Um, Islamic reformers at, at that point in time. Such performances and such forms of gender nonconformity were not considered necessarily impossible, but but rather a kind of rough spot that should not necessarily be seen, right? And so that efforts should be made to reduce the visibility or the necessity of such kinds of performance, right? So that's one example. What I think is, is important here is how particular kinds of ways of seeing, or what James Hosteroy calls a moral psychology of vision, is evoked here in relation to visible performances of uh, gender nonconformity, if, if we can call it that. So what really matters here is is the kind of ways in which, I guess, Wadia in this case are seeing and being seen. Um, the audiences that hail them or that that see them or don't see them, the terms on which they they see them, and then the ways that Wadiya cultivate themselves um, in order to be seen, right, to two different audiences. But that very much depends on this contingent kind of moral psychology of vision that that Wadiya and and other um, gender and sexual minorities in Indonesia must contend with. I wonder if you could speak about or explain about the rights the rights that Waria or people, individuals who are gender non-conforming have in Indonesia. So the short question is, do Waria have the same rights as gender conforming individuals in Indonesia? Yeah, this is a, a complicated question in a way. Thank you for asking it though. Um, so I guess I, I would say that Wadia, in a sense, occupy a kind of unique position in lots of ways. That's not to say that Wadia are the only kind um, of gender and sexual minority, right? Or the only term that's used to identify as such. However, I guess there's a certain kind of infrastructure that has been built up over time in relation to Wadia, and particularly in terms of public space. So if I draw draw on my example before, so Wadia made a claim, and in fact the category Wadia itself emerged out of a kind of negotiation with a governor um, of, of a city of Jakarta. And that negotiation necessarily required Wadia to make a claim to 
an audience, in this case the city. Ali Sadiqan suggested that Wadia should develop the skills that they need to be able to improve themselves, particularly improve their appearances, and in taking control over their appearances that they would be better able to make a claim to respectability, to say that they are of use to society. Now that's a very common turn of phrase that, that I heard, of use to society. And so at that particular point in time, one way that, that Wadia did that was in, in relation to beauty, um, particularly consumer capitalist norms of feminine beauty. And in fact, Wadia, as, as is well known, became very famous, right? In, in that field. So many, you know, many listeners of this podcast will will be able to recognize um, names like Jenny Han, um, people like Dorce, right, is an, another famous, uh, famous person. And there are many, many other examples. But that through that process of kind of um, attaining a degree of recognition in relation to feminine beauty, Wadia obtained a, a visibility that is kind of unprecedented, right, in, in Indonesian society. Now, if we, we compare, say, Wadia to other kinds of um, identities, so we might call them, yeah, so I've referred to them as gender and, and sexual minorities. Now, there's very different kinds of, of things going on here. So, for instance, gay men, um, uh, you know, who, with whom Wadia have kind of, you know, obviously Wadia and, and, and gay men are not the same thing at all, but the two categories um, have kind of grown up in dialogue with one another. What's notable to me is the way that gay men are able to kind of navigate visibility in a way that Wadia cannot. So, you know, the common terms being open or closed, right? So you might talk about a gay man in Indonesian as uh, terbuka or tertutup. Now, the forms of visibility that Wadia uh, acclaim are not on those terms. So you might say that Wadia are open, they're visible wherever they go. That kind of visibility has enabled Wadia to claim a kind of recognition. So as I mentioned before, recognition when they are in or limited to particular spaces. But that visibility and that recognition is very fragile. It's something that has to be earned. It's something that has to be constantly performed. And that visibility also, as, as I mentioned before, if we think of it in terms of a moral psychology of vision, if the kinds of terms of vision change, if the kinds of ways of seeing, right, those kind of structures of vision are altered, then that visibility can become a very risky thing indeed. A lot more young people in Indonesia are aware of the term like queer, being a queer individual, LGBTQIA, with all the materials and information that they receive on social media and online in general. Would you say that Waria receive a better treatment mm. today in Indonesia? So, as I mentioned before, in relation to Islam, right, and, and Wadiya's negotiation with the shifting position of, of religion in the nation, you know, so too is it really hard to draw a straight line, um, you know, of a, of a kind of linear path towards acceptance or towards rejection. It's certainly the case that since 2016, um, there have been alarming 
responses to claims to recognition by gender and sexual minorities. And those have often been framed in, in terms of LGBT. There's often been framed as a, what, what, what many scholars have called a, a moral panic in relation to LGBT. What's interesting is that Waria have been able to kind of negotiate a space in which they're very ambiguously placed in, in terms of LGBT. So, you know, you might ask the question, are Wadia, you know, can Wadia be seen in terms of LGBT people? Is it possible to define Wadia in, in such ways? What is undoubtedly the case is that over time, there, is, there has been a, a trend towards defining Wadia or seeing Wadia in terms of or in relation to LGBT. And that's something over which they have had little control. Um, it's been a framing, right, a way of seeing them that has, has emerged through the media, through expertise, through, say, a relationship to HIV responses, right, and, and a kind of language of epidemiology even, right, that, that draws on, on understandings of gender and sexuality. I was very interested, for example, um, by that YouTube influencer, YouTuber, Ferdian Palaka. So, you know, he, he kind of conducted this uh, awful and very transphobic prank um, on a group of Wadia, right? So he kind of, you know, in a very perverse way, um, leveraged the visibility of Wadia in order to kind of enhance his own fame, right? Or attract attention to himself. But what was really notable about about that turn of events was the way that it led to such a such a, a kind of condemnation of his his behaviour, um, and a kind of uh, turn to 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 think about the ways that you represent people, right? And that representation is not merely something that kind of shows an existing reality, but it shapes the very thing that you're seeing, right? And and I think that the, the the various forms of commentary and engagement with that case that I saw, um, to me, were a really kind of clever and and astute engagement with um with this enduring question right of of a of a of a kind of ethics of of, of seeing and being seen with which Wadia have struggled for for a very long time. Can I just highlight your point on that about? the attacks, well, the prank, the, the transphobic prank that you just brought up. There have been, unfortunately, a number of attacks that warrior individuals had have had to endure. From my point of view, there have been an increase of horrible, quite brutal attacks to warrior individuals. Maybe my question is a bit redundant, but I'm just interested to know what you think about those attacks what what, what do you think they represent with uh, with regards to Indonesian society part of, of, of the response to this question lies in what is visibility and what is historical forms of visibility so of course the kind of visibility that Wadia um, have managed to achieve um, and managed to cultivate has enabled them to access a certain kind of, of, of recognition, right, in particular contexts. But it also makes them extremely vulnerable um, to, to the kinds of 
transphobic um, and, and violent attacks that, that you describe. Of course, um, Wadia have negotiated this in this, this problem, I guess, of, of, of their visibility, ongoing visibility, and that double-edged nature, I guess, of their visibility over time in 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 different ways. So let me uh, draw on an example from from my fieldwork to think about the ways in which Wadia have negotiated um, the kinds of violence, I guess, that you described during fieldwork in 2014. Um, a group of Wadia um, and allies were attacked in broad daylight at an event for the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biphobia. That event involved um, an attack by an organization that was kind of never officially or formally formally known, but it basically involved some, some very serious assaults. What I noticed on that day was the way in which activists were able to kind of mobilize around that attack and to draw on it as an example, as, as a very explicit example of a, um, you know, a form of transphobic violence, right? And I think it is, is very important to do so. So effectively, it served as, in a sense, a theater, right, for, for um, a certain negotiation with forms of recognition or visibility and responses to it. But what kind of remained difficult to articulate was the everyday and enduring forms of, of violence that, that Wadia have endured, often at the hands of state um, actors. So as I mentioned, um, contestations over public space have been really central to defining the term Wadia, right, since, since its, its inception and, and indeed defining the meanings of gender nonconformity in, in Indonesian society more generally. What's very troubling about the, the, the forms of violence, I guess, that we're seeing against um, Wadia and, and other um, other gender and sexual minorities in Indonesia is that their visibility is put to use in ways over which they have little control and that it becomes kind of, I guess, utilized as as, as a political tool, which Wadia will you know will struggle to be able to negotiate. So if we if we kind of zoom in on this relationship between gender performance and public space, um, I think we also need to to think carefully about the ways in which questions of, of gender and sexuality or of, um, of wadia are never only related to gender performance, but they are kind of drawn into and, um, you know, necessarily um, are defined in terms of class and in terms of ethnicity, right, as forms, other forms of visibility, right, that really matter in defining Indonesian public space. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's certainly the case that the Wadia who face um, immense, the immense weight of, of violence and persecution at the hands of the state are very frequently poor um, Wadia, right? Or, or Wadia from, who, who are members of the, the urban poor. Um, and, the context in which they face kind of immense forms of violence from from state actors, often in the name of of the rehabilitation of Wadia, it's also important to emphasize. So, so you, for example, you know, a common example would be the raid on Wadia sex workers in public space. So, the raid on Wadia sex, sex workers in public space, or on a Wadia busker walk, you know 
walking down the street um, performing for 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 in exchange for money um, is not necessarily uh, defined as a criminal act. It's rather defined in in terms of uh, kind of a social welfare right concern. So here again, we turn to a, a kind of another, I guess what I'm drawing attention to again and again is this kind of politics of seeing and being seen. So the question then becomes, so, you know, if, if this the, these forms of violence are, you know, ongoing and enduring forms of violence that Wadia contend with uh, from both state and, and frequently state, but, but also non-state actors, what is this violence disciplining, right? What in in aid of what kind of power um, to see and being seen is this taking place? And I think that's a, a vital question that that, to my mind, um, needs further interrogation. With the increasing popularity of the discourses of LGBTQIA in terms like being transgendered and as you said there are differences they're not necessarily the same so with that in mind do you think that younger transgendered individuals in Indonesia could identify with the figure of waria or do you think there has been any significant changes with the ways in which younger people who identified as transgendered see themselves in relation to waria yeah i think that this is such such an important question and i think a really kind of exciting question in lots of ways so you know if we go back to the the beginning of our conversation um you know i mentioned that Wadia earlier, Wadam, right, from 1968, was in fact itself a, a new term, right? So it was claimed as, in a sense, a, you know, one way to put it is to say it was claimed as a new identity. And the term that Wadam um, and, and Wadia after it was defined against was the term Banchi, right? So Banchi is, is, is of course, a... Uh, you know, historically, a term that's used historically, it's in its contemporary usage, incredibly derogatory, um, at the same time as kind of being reappropriated, right, by by different groups as kind of, you know, a, a term of address to, to one another. But Wadia and Wadam themselves are terms that were created um, in order to assert a kind of modern identity, right, a difference from what came before. So, I, I think that although it's you know that as I mentioned before you know there's no kind of you know, linear path towards gender and sexual modernity right there's no linear path towards acceptance or tolerance but what you know what we can see happening again and again over time is the really clever ways in which um, Indonesians um, and people all around the world of course draw on the kind of um, you know linguistic but also embodied resources that they have at hand to kind of craft lives that they see as fitting who they feel themselves to be. Um, so, you know, a recent example might be, you know, so you mentioned um, LGBT 
IQA plus as one example, queer as another example, you know, both fantastic and, and very vibrant, lively um, forms of identification and community in the Indonesian context um, that are, are, of course, not reducible to, you know, the way in which those terms might be used in other parts of the world, say, say in Australia, right? Um, but rather kind of, you know, will do so in ways that reflect kind of, you know, life in contemporary Indonesia, right, as, as, a, as an Indonesian young person. But but one example that might be, be interesting to think about is, is Transpuan, right? So Transpuan is um, a term that has kind of emerged in use over the past few years. I guess what's interesting about Transpuan and what draws me to it is the ways that it I guess, in a sense, has parallels, right, to terms like wadia and uh, wadam, not necessarily in, of course, the way that people who identify themselves as such see themselves, right? So I'm not suggesting that you know, people who identify as wadia and people who identify as transborn will share kind of you know, similar um, subjective um, and embodied experiences of, 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 their, of their gender. But the, the term, if we think about the term itself, they're both combination terms. Um, so, you know, transpuan being a combination word made up of, of the separate words for transgender and prampuan, um, they both come out of um, kind of or following moments of immense struggle and upheaval. Um, so Wadam in 1968, um, transpuan in in to th uh, after the events of 2016 in, in 2018 or so. And I guess what I find really powerful and refreshing about, um, you know, the use of, of the term transpuan and engagement with it is, is its kind of desire to, on the one hand, situate a both individual and collectives, right, or, or Another way to put that is community on generational terms, right? So at a particular point in time, but also to kind of use the tools at hand, to use the language that people have to assert, you know, new avenues and new forms of recognition. Thank you so much, Ben, for your incredibly brilliant and illuminating answers. I'm so looking forward to your book. It's been great having you in this episode, Ben. Thank you. Thank you so much for our conversation today, Anissa. I really enjoyed it. That was Dr. Benjamin Hegarty, a Mackenzie Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Melbourne. His book, tentatively titled The Made-Up State, will be out very soon. Talking Indonesia returns on May 6 with my co-host Dr. Gemma Purdy. You can find Talking Indonesia at Indonesia at Melbourne blog and wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.